Okay, last time we covered Joshua 8 till the end portion in verses 30 through 35 where Joshua Joshua and the people have defeated uh, the king of Ai and the city of Ai and now in 8 verses 30 through 35 they have a kind of covenant (coughs) renewal service or ceremony here. Let's first read it and and just ask you um, what names, what phrases stand out to you in reading this particular text. Uh, So, but um, there are several interesting things about the text we want to say. But in verses 30 through 35, Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool. And they offered burnt offerings to the Lord and peace offerings. He wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. All Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priest, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. Then afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. Okay, what, if I ask it too specific, it may make the answer obvious, but what stands out to you? What's repeated there constantly? As the Lord had commanded. Okay, as the Lord commanded... And particularly as the Lord commanded, where? The law of Moses, yes. So things like the Lord had commanded, the law of Moses. Moses is mentioned in verse... um, 31 twice, 32, 33, and 35. So Moses is just constantly being mentioned. I think that's right. And usually it is the law of Moses. And the people are said to do according to the way of Moses. Now, I ask you to read... Deuteronomy 27. 
I hope you got to read Deuteronomy 27 because in Deuteronomy 27 verses 1 through 14 basically everything that happens here in Joshua chapter 8 was specified. It was said by Moses to keep his commandments which he is going to command the people in verse 1 and to cross the Jordan to go into the land that God gives you in verse 2. The land that God gives you flowing with milk and honey verse 3. Look at verse 4. It shall be when you cross the Jordan you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones as I am commanding you today and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God an altar of uncut stones you shall wield an, no not wield an iron tool on them. You see, you see the similarity? <laughs> you shall build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones and shall offer on it burnt offerings and you shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there same kind of offerings even and in verse 8 you shall write on the stones all the words of this law distinctly now the two mountains what mountains are they Okay, Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal. And you see the tribes in verse 12 that were to stand on Mount Ebal and the tribes that were to stand on Mount Gerizim. Uh, in verse 12, Mount Gerizim. Verse 13, Mount Ebal. Now, I, I want to make one point before we, read, before we leave Deuteronomy 27. And we could deal with Deuteronomy 27 in more detail so forgive me for not stating more. But I would state that there is a little difference in emphasis on these two occasions. I would state the emphasis in Joshua, the emphasis in Joshua 8 is on the blessing of the people. And I state that because of verse 33. In verse 33, the emphasis is on the blessing of the people. So half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them Mount Ebal, just as Moses' servant of the Lord had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. Now they read the blessing and the curse in verse 34, but, but there's the emphasis on the blessing. In Deuteronomy 27, there's an emphasis on the curse. Now, why would I say that in Deuteronomy 27? Because it's not so much from the first 14 verses. But what, Sarah? I was going to say, the rest of the chapter, each verse begins, curse it is, curse it is. They pronounce 12 curses upon people in verses 15 through 26 of Deuteronomy 27. So, so the emphasis there falls on the curse, this on the blessing. The people have been obedient and right now is a good day in Israel, is a day of blessing as they renew this covenant. They are careful to renew the covenant 
as it's written in the book of Moses, they have in verse 31 of Joshua 8, the altar of uncut stones. They offer burnt offerings and peace offerings, just as Deuteronomy 27 called them to do. And Joshua writes the law of Moses distinctly in the presence of the people on these stone copies. Now, that is interesting from several perspectives. Deuteronomy 27 called the people to do this, to write this on these stone tablets. Where else can you think of a case where someone is told to write the word of the Lord? Where else can you remember that? When they crossed Jordan, was, was that a time? Oh, okay. Right here. Here you talk about. Yeah, well, here, here's one of them, yes. But, but it was someone outside of this. And uh, uh, I saw Sarah's hand first, Brad, and. and the, the king was told to. The king was told. So what you know, Oh, the king was told to write in Deuteronomy 17. The positive commandment given to the king is he's to write a copy of the law of the Lord. Now, I want to tell you, something came to me this time looking at the text and reading a comment on this text that that I, I don't remember before. Obviously, I was exposed to it before because I'd underlined it in a book before, but, but it hadn't registered on me. But you notice that here it is said that Joshua wrote this in Joshua 8.32. He wrote this in the presence of the people. And the comment was made, maybe the king writing out a copy of the law Maybe when he wrote it out, this was not just a private thing that he did. But this was done publicly to emphasize before everyone that this is what we're following. This is what we're living by. Now, what is the basis for that? The basis of that is just the emphasis of doing this in the presence of all the people. I'm not sure that that's exactly right, but I thought that it was worth mentioning. Do you know at times um, our country has, and I don't know who is behind this, but they will have on the steps of the Capitol a reading from all of Scripture over a period of a few days. Now, not well attended, no media coverage. But the very fact that that's done is a statement. And Well, the king was told to do his writing in the presence of the priest, so he wasn't... Yes, yes, that's right, that's right. He was in the presence of a Levitical priest, yeah. In, in 17, is it 17, 18? Yes, sir. Okay. And so, um, yeah. How does that relate? Okay, I, I am trying to. I'm trying to think if about putting all that together, Ann, and I'm not doing it on the spot. I apologize. Um, but the altar is built on Mount Ebal, verse thirty. 
Mount Ebal. A verse 30. Mount Ebal. Now, in the Samaritan Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy 24, verse, Deuteronomy 27, verse 4, I believe it is, the Samaritan Pentateuch, which is the Samaritan's copy of the law, they had that the altar was built on Mount Gerizim. Or Gerizim. Why would that be a big deal? How does it affect the rest of the Bible and interpretation? Remember when the Samaritan woman says that our fathers say we worship at this mountain and you say Jerusalem is a place to worship? She's pointing out Mount Gerizim. And uh, that was the place the Samaritans believed that God was to be worshipped. And um, so uh, just, just point out this difference. And I, and I want to do something else. I, I want to I mention something else to you here, which is very dangerous in this sense because I, I don't know the proper explanation. But I'm at least going to mention this to you. This passage, 8, verses 30 through 35, it appears here in the Hebrew text. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, There was a manuscript of Joshua, and it appears after Joshua 5, verse 1. Now, in the ancient Septuagint, the Greek translation, it appears after 9 2. So all of them have it. And yet some of them have this account in different places. Um, like I said, that's dangerous maybe mentioning that because uh, what this means for us, I'm not sure. But I just wanted to, to throw that out. But don't lose sight of the main point that after their obedience and victory at I, after God gave them I, they are renewing the covenant, they are affirming their responsibility to the law and their willingness to obey it, their willingness to surrender to it, that it is their guide, that it is their direction, that it is what they are seeking to follow. What else do you all see about those verses? I've just always been struck by uh, an altar of benefit stones. Yes. And part of that is just the difficulty in building an altar with stones that you don't get to shape. Yes, yes. And how long it would take compared to 
you've got these bricks that are all the same size. Da -da 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 -da. Sacrifice, okay, we're done. And it takes time and effort to prepare to sacrifice. Yes, yes. It would either way. Yeah. But 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 it's certainly what you're saying is true. And by the way, there there are references to that in the law before this. In Exodus 20, verse 25, you shall not build it of cut stones when you make an altar of stone. Now, let me ask you, what might be the reason for that? Why would it be said the altar is to be of uncut stones, Bob? It always struck me that there was kind of allegorically it would be that man does not yield his, his influence on what God has made. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. use it in that way. Now, I may be way off. No, I think in a certain sense, <coughs> anything we touch defiles it. And anything we make defiles it. Do you know, just pay attention to how frequently in the Bible, at key points, there's something like <coughs> uncut stones or a donkey on which no one has ridden or something of that nature that it hasn't been defiled or contaminated in any way by man. That is a statement to us of God's holiness, perhaps, and our, and our uh, sinfulness. Yes, Bob. Uh, this is one of the things where it was helpful. I think when Susan and I were fortunate enough to get to go over there, and, and visit these places mm -hmm. where these accounts were uh, uh, took place. The, the countryside is strewn with with stones the size of your head, mm -hmm. just strewn with everywhere, every place you look. <coughs> so uh, it was actually just they went out and collected stones. There was also places where there was bedrock where I suppose they could have went and cut yes. uh, shapes and make them nice and straight in straight corners mm -hmm. and fashion them after man's desire. Yes. God was basically saying, why don't we pick those, those stones up and make an altar for me from those? Yes, yes. But it's every place, I wish I had made a slide up, you know, maybe someday I will. It's this prevalent. Everywhere you look, there's stone everywhere. Yes, yes. It looks like God put it there. Well, there was a, there's a statement, old Jewish statement that I remember that, that uh, talked about a bird was carrying in creation, a bird was carrying all the stones of the world and it dropped half of them over Palestine. <laughs> so I can't remember, and I'm not being quoting it very verbatim, but it's the same kind of idea that Bob is stating. Sarah? Well, another way to think of it is if this is what God wants, the uncut stones, it means. No one can say, well, I couldn't build an altar to the Lord because I needed to have perfectly mortared stones and, and all yeah. of that. There's always, except maybe a few places on earth, I don't know, but there's always there are always stones that can be stacked up okay. and turned into an altar. It's like, it's, in one sense, it's like uh, unleavened bread and juice. They're very common things. It's going to be hard to find a place where you couldn't get that. Yes, yes, yes. I understand. Yes, good, good point. Good point. It's something that's very accessible to us. Um, 
I, I don't know if I did well in this section of just emphasizing what a profound occasion Joshua 8, 30-35 would be as the people are affirming that God is guiding them through Scripture and their willingness to follow those Scriptures. But let's look at the first 15 verses of Joshua uh, Joshua 9. Would you want to read that sure. there, Paul? And it came to pass when the kings who were on the side of Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland, and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, heard about it, and they gathered together to fight against Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. They took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where are you from? So they said to him, From a very far country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we heard of his fame, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and Og the king of Bashan, who was in Ashtaroth. Therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions for you for the journey, and go meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Now therefore, please make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot from our provision, from our homes, on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it's dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new, and see, they are torn. And these garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them, and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. Okay, very good, very good. Now, did you notice the contrast you have in verse 1 and verse 3? Um, in, in verse 1, when all the kings beyond the Jordan... Um, let's, let's look here. Okay. But in nine one, when all the kings beyond the Jordan hear this, what did they do? What do the kings do when they hear? What they do is prepare for war. But you have in nine three. What happens when the Gibeonites heard? When the Gibeonites heard, what did they do? And I, I didn't arrange it with my wording in a perfectly parallel way. I probably didn't help call attention to the similarity. But you have one group who hears this news and they prepare for war. Another group here, and they know that war is futile 
And resistance is futile. And so they try an alternative method of making peace, of making a covenant with Israel. Now, the text tells us that it gives a description of these nations. Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite. I read this statement. There are 19 kinds of lists like this in Scripture. 19 kinds of lists like that in these first few books. And this list only perfectly fits one of those. And it's Deuteronomy 20 and verse 17. Now I know some of you are saying, that's interesting, but it means nothing. Hold on to that passage. Okay. It may mean something. It may mean something. And hope we get to study enough of it that, that I can show that. But all these kings gather together for war. In verse 3, some gather together and they act craftily. Now, that word craftily can be used positively. It is sometimes an equivalent to wisdom in the book of Proverbs. It can sometimes talk about deceit, like the serpent in the Garden of Eden. It can be used in a variety of ways. Is it positive here? Is it negative? Well, we'll have to see. But you notice that as Paul was reading right at the very beginning that these worn out sacks, these worn out wineskins, these worn out sandals and clothes and their crumbly bread, they're, they're carrying all of this. The purpose of that is not evident initially, but it will become clear in just a moment. But they state in verse 6, we have come from a far country. We have come from a far country. That is very important in what they're saying. But the Bible tells us in verse 7 that these people who are saying this to Israel are Hivites. They're Hivites. Have we heard about Hivites recently? Right there, verse 1. They're one of the groups that as a whole was preparing for war with Israel. They are also listed in Deuteronomy 7 as one of those groups you do not make a covenant with. And Israel's suspicion is up right away. They said, well, we've come from a far country. And they said, how do we know you're from a far country? How do we know you're not living right here in the land? How do we know that? Who are you? Where do you come from? Now, before they answer that question, who are you and where do you come from? They first speak of the greatness of Israel's God. And we could criticize the deception of the Gibeonites, and we should. But at the same time, 
I love what they say about God. And I don't know how I asked the question. But whose speech does this remind you of in the book of Joshua? Rahab's. Yeah. Rahab gives the same kind of speech in Joshua chapter 2 in verses 9 through 11 that these men give in verse in verse 9 and 10. Again, they state in verse 9, just like they had in verse 6, we come from a faraway country. We come from a faraway country because we have heard of the Lord your God and of all He did. Now, what specifically, what actions of God, what acts of God, what historical events do they make reference to in speaking of the greatness of Israel's God? Leaving Egypt. Leaving Egypt. The Exodus. They make reference to that. What else? Sihon and Og. Sihon and Og. Those were big events. Sihon and Og. The conquering of them in Numbers chapter 21. And their fame apparently was great. The news of that victory is great. I, I don't know how they communicated in that particular time. But I'll tell you. Word got around fast, even in that day. And some of them understood the significance of it. But we've heard the report of you. We've heard of all you did in the land of Egypt. We've heard of those two kings of the Amorites, Sihon and Og, that that you've defeated. And so the people of our country said, let's make a covenant with them. And you take provisions on your way. And he said, you see our, our worn out sandals. When we started on the journey, they were brand new. And you see our clothes are worn out. And, and, and our clothes are worn out. But when we started, they were brand new. And you see how dry and moldy our bread is. But when we started out, this was just hot out of the oven. And who's going to take dry molten bread with them from point one anyway? What mistake does Israel make? They did not ask the counsel of the Lord. Everything passed the sight test. So as we talk about the sight test, it all passed that sight test. But sometimes you've got to go deeper than that. Sometimes you've really got to think through things. And most of all, people of God have got to seek His instruction. they got to seek His will. And so they trusted what they saw, but they didn't ask counsel of the Lord. And so... They made a covenant with the people and they swore an oath to them. Now, what is the big deal about Deuteronomy 20 in verse 17? Well, it really goes to the context of that statement. In Deuteronomy 20, Verses 10 through, um, I think in the whole context, it's about 10 through verse 20, I believe. 
But the people of Israel, it's at least verse 18. You can look at it and correct me if I'm missing something. And always if I miss a verse, feel free to correct it right away because I want to give people the right documentation. But if a people are far away, you can make a covenant with them. I think it's just through 18, isn't it? It's 18. But then in verses 16 through 18, if they're in the land, you totally destroy them. Totally destroy them. Now, it was in that context, in that context, where if they're in the land and totally destroy them, that the same exact list given in Joshua 9, uh, Joshua 9 verse 1 is given. The same list of nations appears in Deuteronomy 20 in verse 17. Uh, and then we find in verse 7 that these people were Hivites, one of the groups that are mentioned. But I'll tell you something that's amazing to me. About. What, what is amazing about that? Well, their faith is what's amazing to me. The Gibeonites? Yeah. Okay. The Gibeonites do have faith in God, faith that He will give them land. But I want to tell you something. They knew the law of Moses enough to know that if they were living in the land, they would be destroyed. That they could only make a covenant for them if they lived far away. They knew that. Now you think about that. What excuse was there for anybody in Israel to say? I didn't know. These people, and how did they know that? Someone might say maybe they found it written on a big rock. I don't know. The big rock that we saw earlier. I don't know. But they knew the law enough to know that. See, you know one thing I think it shows it? We can find out parts of the of us. And we can carefully familiarize ourselves with those. Brad, you had a thought. Um, yeah, it's interesting too that even the type of covenant yeah. in verse 10 of De Deuteronomy 20, um, if they accept an oath, like you make them a peace offering, if they accept that offering and open their gates all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you yes which spoiler alert <laughs> is what the Gibeonites yes so um, they even knew the terms of the con the, the contract that yeah. it should be they were willing to submit to that yeah gladly willing to submit to that and uh, so very yes very good point what, what else Bob uh, this is probably evidence of some of the first uh, but maybe this is the second set of spies we've encountered here. But these guys were a little good at it. Oh, yes, they were good at it. They were good at it. They knew just exactly how to play this. And, um, you know, I don't want to get off on this too much. But um, I can remember one time a church calling me and talking about a situation and uh, said uh, this person came by uh, and, and oh, what? I'm going to have to drop that illustration 
But I'm thinking, I, I did, I, I'll, 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 I'll just tell you what I thought, Ted, and I said, yes. Um, I said, if you had called before, I would have told you what you just found out the hard way. Uh, if you had just called before and they had taken a statement from him and um, my association with him as an approval <laughs> a disapproval and um, so I, I just use that as what, I, what I'm saying I use that as an illustration we may do the same kind of things not that we're going to have a direct access to the Lord the way Joshua does but sometimes we may take things at face value and not really think carefully through them. That, that's all I'm, I'm trying to state through that. Andrew, you have a thought. I find it interesting that the people, the men of Israel, are the ones that call them out to being in the land. And then Joshua afterwards is like, where are you from? So I found it interesting that the people were more like cutting to the, the idea that they might be trying to trick them. And Joshua's response seems kind of like after the fact, like, where are you from? In, in verse verse eight. Yeah, yeah I, I I don't uh yeah, I, that is a good point that he just says first the men said this and then Joshua said this. That is a good point. But but I guess to me that shows even more the fact they should have inquired about this because they're suspicious from the from day one. They're suspicious from the get go. And by the way, how far is Gibeon, Gibeon from um, Jerusalem? What was that? Three days. Oh, um, it, it's like a three-day journey or something. Well, it's really, it's really only about five miles. I think it's three days they discover it. Okay. You're, you're, that's what, what you're reading, Sarah, in verse um, later in Old Testament history. There is a story in, jo- in, Je- in Jeremiah 38 of a man, Jeremiah 28, excuse me, of a man named Hananiah. And I may have misspelled Hananiah's name. It means the Lord is gracious. Hananiah, I think I spelled that right. Hananiah is said to be a Gibeonite. Why is that significant in context? Gibeonites are supposed to all have been cut off. Okay, in this context, because he tries to deceive. He tries to deceive. And and, um, now, another place, who is charged, this, what Sarah said brought this to mind. Who is rebuked in the Old Testament because he did try to destroy the Gibeonites after this covenant? Who is that? Saul. Saul. Saul does that. In 2 Samuel 21. It should have been cut off before, but now they've made the covenant. It's different. Now, I want you to notice too that there are a host of cities associated with the Gibeonites. In verse 17, there were several cities Gibeon, uh, Shephira, Bereth, Kareth, Jerem that are associated with them. And, and like Sarah said earlier in verse 16, it came about at the end of three days that they made a covenant with them. 
that they heard that they were neighbors and they and that, that they were neighbors and they were living within their land. And it mentions the, the nations. And it says in verse 18, the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. Grumbling, complaining, murmuring, which was so common in the wilderness, is only mentioned here in Joshua. Now, I don't know if this is making too much of the point. But maybe there's significance to the fact they grumble against the leaders and not against God. Had the leaders in this case done the right thing? No. They hadn't done the right thing. Maybe there is significance to the fact it doesn't say they're grumbling against God. So that may be a difference from those cases in Numbers. But in verse 19, all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them. Even let them live so that wrath will not be upon us for the oath which we have sworn to them. The leader said to them, let them live. So they became hewers of wood, drawers of water for the whole congregation, just as the leaders had spoken. Brad, go ahead and read 22 through 27. I, you, 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 you ruined the ending for all of us. But uh, <clears throat> So go ahead and just read that. You're welcome. Okay. Uh, then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you, while actually you live near us? You are now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we fear for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. Okay. So the the Gibeonites become woodcutters and water carriers for the house of the Lord. They are put to forced labor as we see in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And they willingly consent to this. They are glad simply to be alive, to be spared. The text says in verse 26 that... He did to them, Joshua did to them, and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel. Joshua delivered them. What's the name Joshua mean? What was that? The Lord delivers. Yeah, the Lord, the Lord is salvation. It, it, this doesn't use the form. It uses a different word for deliver. But one writer said 
and we'll have to look for this, that it's the only time in the book Joshua specifically said to deliver or save someone. Now, when we get into the next chapter, what we're going to find is these Gibeonites are attacked, and they come to Israel for help. One of the things when you made a covenant with a people and the other people were kind of the leaders in the covenant, what is called the ancient Near, or what people who study the ancient Near East call it is a suzerain treaty where the king is the, the suzerain. He, he gives the terms of the covenant. The people are his subjects. They are his servants as the Israelites were. Now, the, these, people are, these people are responsible to you. They are to be obedient to you. <clears throat> but at the same time, you have to protect them. When they are attacked in Joshua 10, they will come asking Joshua for help. And Joshua will deliver them. I do think this passage though I don't know how to deal with everything here, I do think this passage has to come into play when people talk about the brutality of Israel just going and annihilating all of their enemies. They let the Gibeonites live. Now, if the Gibeonites had been honest with them and said, we want to serve your God. We'll tell you the truth. We're right here in the land. We're just a few miles from you. Would God have let them live? He let Rahab live. I can't answer that question because that's not the way history unfolded. Okay? I can't answer it. But Already God said he's given Jericho into his hand and he spared Rahab and her family. I do think that this shows us that there were ways to avoid this destruction from the hands of Israel. And so why would these other nations... when? When Gibeah knows in verse 3 that resistance is futile, why are these other nations like that? I don't, I don't want to speculate too much. But, but any other thoughts there? <clears throat> I think it's a neat uh, picture of mercy and grace. You said it was a type of covenant not only to uh, spare, but also to protect. But it, it is a, a picture of a heathen nation receiving mercy yes. and grace. Like, not only did they not get what they deserved, but they got something they didn't deserve. They got protection. And protection that from God that spanned hundreds of years. You know, like, yes. like you referenced when there was, the, there was the plague when David was king, and David said, what's going on, God? And God said, well, Saul, yes. Saul mistreated the Gibeonites and you need to make that right. So God remembered that covenant hundreds of years later uh, under David. Yes, yes. Um, I, want to, I want to tie in something else with what Brad just said. Saul destroyed the Gibeonites. Okay. 
Who was Saul's son who tried to take the throne after he died? It's only recorded in Samuel. It's not recorded in Chronicles. But his son, and he had the civil war with David. Do you remember who that was? Ishbosheth, yes. Very good, Anne. Ishbosheth. Do you remember what happened to Ishbosheth at the end? He's killed. <clears throat> He's killed by uh, two men, Baana and Rechab, who are from Bereth. Does that name sound familiar to you? Look at 9.17. Bereth was one of the cities associated with Gibeon. Was Saul's son Ishbosheth killed for the sins of Saul? Was he assassinated by these people because they're looking to take vengeance on him for what he did to the Gibeonites? To me, that is a reasonable connection in the text. But... Um, <clears throat> Okay, very good. I know we didn't cover everything thoroughly, but but what thoughts or ideas do you all have? Uh, go ahead. I just have, I guess, a thought question is when they made the covenant with them, did that did the Gibeonites have to assume their their worship and their practices because it was said in Deuteronomy that they're supposed to be destroyed because they have bad practices, bad false gods, and that kind of thing. So. When they made this covenant, are they still being bad people? I know. I, I take it that they do, that they they adopt Israelite ways and Israelite worship. They are mentioned in Joshua twenty one verses twenty five through twenty eight. The cities that are mentioned here in Joshua nine verse seventeen are mentioned there in Joshua twenty one uh, verses. Um, 25 through I think it's is it uh, excuse me excuse me that's it's Joshua 18 25 through 28 Joshua 18 25 through 28 it mentions these cities they become part of the inheritance of Benjamin so I take it Nikki yes that they become Israelites they have to give up their false gods they have to adopt Israelite ways and become part of them. And, and, and I, yes, I, I do. Isn't there also a connection between what Joshua does for the Gibeonites and what Jesus has done for us? I yes. Mean, Joshua is. Yes, I, I, absolutely. I mean, a group of people that deserve destruction, but he delivers anyway. So y'all are doing well with that. We don't have we don't have as much time as we have on Psalms class on Tuesday night to have a separate ten minutes at the end. But but uh, Jesus in this psalm. But but you're right. You're exactly right, boy. Good point. Thank you all, and uh, Lord willing, we shall see you 